Good morning and welcome to Research Ed Berkshire, hosted by Nick Hart and Karen Westbeezer. And more than a job podcast, are absolutely delighted to once again be at one of these very, very special Research Ed events, in which the very best minds in education from across the UK and internationally are brought together to discuss, to share, to chat, to network and to have a good time together as we discuss why teaching and education is the best job and the best sector that you could possibly be a part of. This is the highlights package from Research Ed Berkshire. We hope you enjoy this episode and can take something from it. I'm Daniel Bull, let's go. Listen clear now baby, yeah, yeah, cause it begins like Research Ed uh, Berkshire, and we're with Clive Hill. Clive Hill, former soldier, Teach First 2017 ambassador, lead teacher for science in the East Midland, chartered college of teaching council member, and founder of Network EDEM. Network Ed East Midlands. East Midlands, a teacher led community of practice and CPD. My apologies. Clive, welcome to the podcast. Hiya. And what are you talking about today, Clive? Um, so I'm doing two talks. First one is looking at thriving as an early career teacher. And my second one is looking at careers provision in areas of social deprivation, which is my master's thesis. Right, give us a little bit of, without taking away from the ticket holders, uh, can you give us a little bit of snippets, maybe three key points from each? What are the three key takeaways um, from each one? Key takeaway from the early careers teaching one is going to be about uh, networking, looking for sustainable pro- progression through your career, and making sure that you don't bite off more than you can chew. And then for my careers talk, it is looking at the fact that we need to do careers, careers um, teaching earlier on in their education, ideally in primary school, um, that we need to look at what a good, a good job is and stop viewing careers through a middle-class lens and the fact that we need to fund it more. What was your experience like at school? Um, well, I, I was quite lucky. I went to a grammar school, quite local to where we are, um, but it wasn't the best because I, I was told I wasn't going to go to uni. Um, so I didn't really engage very much. And I'm a bit of a poacher turned gamekeeper, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was the, the kid that got into a bit of trouble, but never really got detention. Skirted around that quite well, uh, mostly because I was going to be, they knew I was wanting to join the army. Um, and that's basically where my career went. It wasn't until much later that I decided that I wanted to become a teacher. What made you join the army? Uh, to get away from home. I wanted, right. I wanted to go and see the world. Um, home life wasn't amazing, so it was, a, it was, it was just that escape, really. Yeah. Um, and then everything went on from there. And, and what lessons have you learned from your time, in, your time serving that you've been able to apply to the classroom and education? Um, so I was looking... there are any. There's three, there's three that used to appear on part one orders, and this is in my early career teacher's um, talk. Uh, so it's Major General uh, Sir Patrick Marriott, and he went on to be the colonel of the regiment I was attached to, to, um, the, to be one of the commandants of Sandhurst. So it's all of one company, think to the finish and do as you ought, not as you want. And they've, they used to appear on part one orders every single day. And that's just stuck with me the whole way through. That's what like, drives my ethos in teaching. Yeah. And you talked about careers and obviously um, the fact it needs funding, the fact that it needs a bit of an overhaul. But think about your career. 
and think about the stigma that does still come with the army sometimes and how people place it in terms of importance. How would you sell the army to somebody who hasn't necessarily done well in school but is still looking to find that niche within their life? What can it do for them? Um, confidence is the first thing. Um, you, know, you go to basic training and they, they just completely, you know, they, they strip you back and they build you back up. Um, and I thought that was great for me at, say, at the age of 17. Um, and it's a great leveller. I, I, th- I genuinely think that any of the armed forces, that, that for when we look at social mobility, the armed forces are brilliant at being able to do, largely recruit from areas of social deprivation. And then they'll build you up. You end up, you end up leaving where you've, you've got all those life experiences and skills that you can take out into the workplace. Just going to go on to the careers provision. Mark, there's an MP called Mark Jenkinson who just passed a bill on careers education to start at year seven. You said perhaps you should start in primary school. Are they not too young at primary school age to truly understand? Um, How should it be delivered? I, I think in a primary school, um, I, there's, there's some people that are doing some fantastic work um, at, at getting kids exposed to careers. So I think at, at primary school, it should be breaking down stereotypes. So you know, when, you, when you're bringing people into the school, bringing a male nurse, bringing a female doctor, bringing a female engineer, um, there, there are a handful of male midwives out there, you know, so break those stereotypes down. But also to expose kids to a wider range of careers. Most kids will tell you they want to be a footballer or they want to do something their parents are involved, you know, involved in. Um, in areas of social deprivation, that's quite limiting. Whereas actually, if you expose them to so many different jobs, that um, when they then move up, they've got an idea of what's out there. Yeah. Just going back onto your lead teacher for science, obviously GCSE exams being sat this year. Yeah. Anything, any tips for science teachers around the country in terms of revision materials? What are you focusing on? Have you, have you done anything uh, um, this year? To, yeah. Uh, so I'm looking at um, the required practicals in biology. So, so my, my remit's mostly biology at the school I'm at. Uh, so I've looked at all the required practicals. I've downloaded videos of those being carried out. Um, and we've taken exam questions based on those. And we're drilling the students on how to, how to break down the questions. And the not, cause that's the biggest barrier a lot of our students have is actually what is that question asking? And we've really highlighted, you know, this doesn't look like it, but this is what, what they're actually asking you for, what knowledge you need. Even though it's obviously increased pressure, are you enjoying the, the actual exams happening this year? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's... Um, it's nice to get back to that normal routine and be able to get back to putting students into a position where they, you know, they know that they're working towards something. My own daughter did her GCSEs last year and we've had conversations this year where you know, she's starting to do her A-levels and she's, she's finding it quite difficult because she doesn't feel that she's, she's really earned those grades that she's got and she says she's looking forward to taking her A-levels because she knows that they're hers and she's earned them. Brilliant. Uh, you on Twitter? Yeah, at Clive underscore Hill. Absolutely superb. So anyone listening, if you can uh, tag Clive on and get some brilliant advice. And Network East Midlands, just talk about that. Um, so moved to the East Mids in 2017. Um, there wasn't much to do with networking, collaboration across the region. It's one of the things that Teach First told us about, that there was just nothing there. So um, I decided to set up a, a network of, te- of teachers using the, um, the breakfast club model that the veterans use. Um, so just connected people across Derby and then it went from Derby to Mansfield as well Derby, Mansfield, Nottingham and in the end we just had to put, put, put them all under one umbrella so it became Network Eddie's Meds Absolutely, I mean you're doing everything aren't you in that area yeah. <laughs> that Sounds like it anyway but Clive Hill, we hope your talk goes really well thanks for coming on the podcast this morning No worries, thank you very much uh, 
Uh, it's Jay Woolerton for More Than The Job podcast, and we are with Amina Hammett, who has just delivered her fantastic talk on finding mirrors and looking through the window, children's responses to reading literature with Muslim protagonists. Can you tell us, please, what was the thought behind uh, the research that you did on this? Um, so it actually came from um, an MA in children's literature that I was doing at Goldsmiths University. And um, I didn't think that I'd be willing to do something along these lines, but I was kind of encouraged by my tutors to go into things that might be a little bit uncomfortable and to do things that might reflect my own background a little bit more. Um, so I decided to kind of like do something that out of the ordinary and just sort of step out, you know, step into something of the unknown that's something that's never been researched before. Um, I'm a primary school teacher and I realised that throughout our reading curriculum we weren't reading any books or exposing the children to any books that were really um, reflecting the reality of the children that we had in the school. Um, it was all very white, middle class, um, historically through the years. And so I wanted to show them something that was, um, that was different or something that was familiar, depending on the children that were in the class, and see how they reacted to it. Would they um, ignore the elephant in the room, so to speak? Would they engage with it? Would they um, you know, ask questions, deep, meaningful questions about it? And would they still get the same outcomes or better outcomes when they're actual writing or when it came to the actual English objectives? And what have you found? Um, <laughs> to, to, to put you on the spot. Well, it was it was a range of things. So um, I took a small sample group of about eight um, children from mixed backgrounds, um, some of which came from Muslim backgrounds, some of which did not, um, boys and girls as well. And their responses were, were mixed as you would expect them to be. Largely, there was a lot of um, respect and interest from the children that didn't come from that particular background. So like the ones who were like looking through the window, I suppose, into a different a different world um, and interest. And it put the children from Muslim backgrounds into an unusual situation where they were the experts in what was happening in the book and they were able to kind of speak from an authoritative point of view which some of them really enjoyed but actually there was one child and there was a bit of reticence from some of the others as well who really did not enjoy the experience at all it was just too much for her it was too close to home and she preferred things the way they were um, which was a really interesting sort of point of um, food for thought for me really yeah and um, from your perspective how would you counter the, the narrative of the cancel culture that we're removing certain traditional texts from our curriculums what would you say in response to sort of that that headline or, or subhead i mean the english canon is always going to be the english canon you can't study english literature without knowing something about shakespeare or without knowing something about victorian literature that stuff's never going to go away and rightfully so it has its place in there i just think it's important that we we counter those um those texts as narratives we put it against something that is more more relevant and more modern also when we look at those things if we're going to look at those traditional texts we look at the society that created it we look at what else was happening in the world at the time just to gain a broader world view um, um, as opposed to a very Eurocentric or English-centric um, view, so it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to go away, and there's no fear, fear or threat of any of that going away. It's just looking at things more broadly and widely. If you could recommend two or three texts that you think every primary school child should read that isn't already a, a mainstream text or it's not one that's traditionally in the curriculum, based upon your experience based upon your research yeah. what would you recommend to primary school leaders out there thinking 
okay, let's let's consider that in our curriculum. Okay. Um, well, I think I need to preface it with that there's more out there than there was. Um, the reflecting realities um, research has shown that, but there's still not enough. So whatever I'm selecting comes from a very small pool of things out there at the moment. Um, I think that... Um, in terms of picture books, there's quite a few out there now that are really, really high quality and brilliant. So um, Solway by Lupita Nyong'o, for example, it's about colorism, about a child who's happy and not unhappy about her dark skin in a family where the family are black, but they have lighter shades of skin. Uh, really interesting. Um, um, the Proudest Blue by Ibtihaj Muhammad um, about a big sister who um, is selecting a scarf and wearing her scarf um, for school is a really good one too. There's loads. There's The Name Jar about um, pronunciation of names, which we spoke about just before this, um, um, pronunciation of names. Um, so there's, there's quite a few in terms of picture books. Um, the Planet Omar series by Zainab Mian is also a really good one in terms of like kids who might like Diver Wimpy Kid, but it's just a child from a different background as well. Uh, yeah, um, anything by Anjali Rauf, um, Boy at the Back of the Class, yeah. Um, in, and what you were saying about the students, obviously trying to break stereotypes, trying to break misconceptions with their understanding of different literature. How did the parents respond to this when you were doing it? Because obviously you've got quite a wide dynamic within that primary sector. How, yeah. did, how did they respond to what you were trying so to do? I had to I had to have the parents' permission when I was doing this um, uh, this study. And, you know, it was all granted. Although there was one boy who, um, who opted out. I had to remind every child every session that you can opt out if you want to. Um, and what was interesting about it, I thought from that particular boy that there might be a little bit of resistance um, because he was the only white um, British um, Anglican background boy within the study and I thought maybe this doesn't feel like it's pertinent to him um, and he opted out but actually the interesting thing was when I spoke to his parents they very much wanted him to continue with the study and they were very encouraging him that this would be good for him and for his understanding but he just didn't want to so actually the um, in my small little research study the parents were very very encouraging. That's good. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I have it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're here with Dr. Joe Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a child and educational psychologist born in Hackney in London, but now lives in Devon. Joe works with children, families and schools to support learning and development. He also applies psychology to support organisations to work better and more sustainably. Joe, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, I've loved listening to your lecture. Um, you talked about compassion and we need compassion in schools. Um, you talked about compassion-focused therapy. Can you explain to us what that is, please? Oh, well, yeah, it's great to be with you both. And um, I suppose, let me first just say, there is loads of compassion in schools already. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that I define compassion is, is about the awareness of difficulty and suffering and then also the way in which you commit and try to reduce that so kind of those two components the the awareness of the difficulty and then the action around trying to make things better and um, compassion focused therapy is a uh, an approach developed by Paul Gilbert and um, it's all about trying to help us to understand our emotions and the way in which that our emotions um, relate to our life, where they come from, how they're helpful, and also some of the tricky loops that we can find ourselves getting into mm. where some of the 
evolved functions of our emotions, which are really useful in some contexts, aren't as useful in, in other contexts. So in the talk that we were in together, I was describing how sometimes people can get a real rush of adrenaline yeah. when they open up their inbox, you know, and, and you can feel really nervous about that. And that, you know, that comes from a place of our threat system trying to protect us yeah. because, you know, there might be potential dangers out there if we look to the right when we're crossing a road and there's a car screeching to a halt, we might need to move really fast. Mm. But when we open up our inbox, uh, we don't need to spring into action quite, quite as uh, kind of quickly. And so you can see there that um, that physical response might not be helpful, but also you might find yourself kind of wondering what's in your inbox or trying to plan all of the different responses to emails that could be in your inbox. And so you have there kind of um, another example of how emotions... Uh, that have a real use aren't always that helpful to us so cft is about trying to explore that and then use some approaches to try and uh to try and help ourselves with um coming up with different responses to those kind of situations and one of the um systems you talked about was compassionate mind training about um, how we deal with those certain situations. Can you explain to us a little bit what that is and how that can work for sort of senior leaders in school? Yeah, so in terms of uh, CFT, so Compassion Focused Therapy, um, that's a, a kind of a therapeutic practice um, that you might do with a, a trained um, practitioner. And um, part of that is about the awareness of our emotions and, and kind of really trying to understand the difficulties that we experience and then part of it might be about kind of how we work with that and giving ourselves the skills to try and reduce that um, suffering for ourselves and, and maybe for other people. In terms of schools, uh, they're really fast-paced environment, there are lots of emotions uh, because we really care about helping children and as a result um, things can be really tricky and so CMT or compassionate mind training um, will involve activities which help you to um, really build up your ability to calm and soothe yourself, to uh, explore your emotions and your relationship with them, and to think about how you can, um, yeah, use your emotions um, in a really kind of helpful way, as opposed to sometimes finding yourselves. Um, being kind of used by your emotions and kind of responding to them in a way that's not always that helpful. Uh, so in, in the talk that I gave, you know, one of the activities you might find yourself doing um, is a, a breathing activity. Um, breathing is one of those things that we do it all day, every day. We don't think about it. Um, and it can also feel like a, um, you know, a bit of a strange thing to do, to sit down and, you know, do some breathing with other people. But actually, it is incredibly good at showing our bodies that we're not in a threatening situation. And so it can really slow us down and it can kickstart quite a, a soothing process. And that means that it, it's easier for us to use our skills of planning and meta metacognitive skills um, to really connect with other people, to take time to make more strategic decisions. And so you can see that in school, actually, 
uh, it could really fit with the roles of, of school staff kind of across the across the um, yeah across schools and all the different roles um, there are lots of studies out there that, that have looked at um, compassionate mind training in the workplace and and also in education um, so I suppose yeah we, we kind of see effects like um, improved positive emotion reduced um, markers of burnout and um, and staff talk about using the approaches from CMT uh, to deal with some of the emotions that come with behavior management and staff politics so it's uh, yeah really interesting how, how they're describing it being useful um, and yeah across kind of the range of the teaching experience in terms of students but also colleagues and you're doing this um, trial about 30 schools or 30 different establishments, aren't you, of like, alternative provision and um, specialist schools. If, if people want to get involved in that, how can they find out about this? How can they find you and get involved? Yeah, so I do a lot of work with Dr. Charlie Herriot Maitland, who has um, yeah, introduced me to a lot of the uh, tools that we're, that we're using and a lot of the research base as well. And we've developed a, a process of supervision, uh, so compassion-focused coaching, we've called it, and um, have been delivering that for the difference. So, you know, they have uh, a range of settings, um, SEMH schools, alternative provisions, crews um, across the country. And um, the senior leaders there uh, do CFC across the, the, um, the programme. Uh, we've also just started um, providing CFC for Lighthouse in their first children's home as well. Um, so it's something that is really useful for practitioners in the classroom. Uh, it's also something that we hear senior leaders saying, you know, it's very useful for our practice. Um, if you're interested in getting involved, then probably the best thing to do is find me on Twitter Um Charlie's also on Twitter, but he uses it less, so I'll give him my handle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's at JGE Taylor. Um, or you can email me at hello at drjoetaylor.com. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best way forward. Um, yeah. It sounds a little bit like I, I, I'm into my sport, and I, sorry for mentioning snooker on, on the podcast <laughs> if no one likes snooker, but obviously Ronnie O'Sullivan's worked with, uh, with Dr. Steve Peters. Um, you know, he's worked with all the, a lot of the great British Olympians, and it was about controlling the mind's response that to win these gold medals. Often they'll go into panic mode, or they get an over uh, excessive amount of adrenaline just before a race, for example, or a, an, an event. And it was about almost retraining the brain to think differently and to kick in the calmer side of the brain rather than the uh, is it the amygdala that reacts first. You know, in, in, in that kind of response, in the in the fight or flight thing, and it sounds a little bit like what you're saying now is that, in, in terms of maybe difficult kids who have got issues controlling their anger, or staff who who, who are feeling anxiety in the classroom, it's almost a case of, of reprofiling what they're thinking, isn't it, and and retraining the brain to think in a slightly different way, you know, and so so that's the automatic response rather than the the fight or flight. Am I, am I completely wrong or nearly mm. on the right lines? Well, I mean, I, I know nothing about snooker, but <laughs> um, my thesis was looking at young people's experiences of boxing as an intervention. So I, I do really connect to 
thinking about sport as a vehicle for performance and and learning skills and, and things like that and I think what was really interesting in, in what you said was around the fact that if you're looking to perform at, at your best you don't want to be in a reactive threat-based response frame of mind you want to be really intentional you want to be thinking strategically I imagine when you're uh, taking your snooker shot and um, so you see a whole range of people using breathing techniques, including um, people in the military who are in, you know, really intense threat-based, well, threaten, threatening environments. And um, they're trying to avoid responding in a very reactive way because, you know, that it's, not, it's going to mean you're not performing at your best. Um, I do think that the case, it is the case for educators too, um, it's not the same context, but you do really want to be thinking about, you know, what, what is the, the most wise response in this situation and what's the most caring thing to do? You know, I don't want to just react and, and shout at this, at this child or this colleague. Um, instead, I want to try and think about um, the best way to improve the situation. So there, there definitely are parallels. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Joe Taylor, thanks for joining us and thanks for spending time with us on the podcast today. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you both. We're at Research Head Berkshire and we're with Laura McInerney and Professor Becky Allen, uh, co-founders of TeacherTap, the daily survey app for thousands of teachers. And you've got a lovely little stall and you, you, you've been quite mischievous today with your bottles of gin and stuff. Do you want to talk us oh, through these what? prizes? Come what on. a way to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine Laura and Becky with the alcohol. No, many years ago when we started Teach Tap, one of the things we wanted to do was obviously make people feel like they were part of a really big research, exciting, almost experiment and now big research project. So there's thousands of people who take part in it every day and we wanted to make people, you know, get a bit of reward for that. So we did these hero badges, which came with a perk where we said, if you ever meet us and you have your badge, we'll buy you a drink. Not realising back then when we had a couple of hundred people that we'd end up one day with seven and a half thousand people and lots of them come to research ed. So we decanted these little alcohol bottles and very occasionally someone comes up to us and asks for their drink and I have to get out a little bottle of gin or whiskey it's probably not the greatest idea looking back but it is what it is you've got lots of other merch what if if people yeah. are not involved in teacher tap we'll, we'll go into the details of what teacher tap is later but most important thing is what can we get what, what merch is out there right we have a lot of more safe for work uh, merchandise <laughs> which is more appropriate for teachers to be fair um and teach tap is a daily survey app as you say that we ask primary school t- second primary and secondary school teachers to sign up Uh, to take part in each day answering a couple of questions you get to see the results which is really interesting and it means that that data is going to research projects which influence government and policy makers all the time but way more important than any of that is that you can get some badges you get badges on the app but also if you see us at a conference like at this one you can get a physical badge and you have a go on our merch machine (laughs) <laughs> which is um, like a bingo machine and we have mugs we have pens uh we have clocks today to remind you at three thirty to do your teach tap ah uh, yeah i said this to, to becky at research at birmingham every day i get caught out i think someone sent me a message but it's the research at notification every day i go oh oh it's the uh it, it's We're the notification again yeah, every <laughs> single day um i got myself a badge today my mother i was in a real embarrassing situation Laura said to me, oh, can I see your phone? And my streak was just at one. 
because I forgot to do it yesterday. Yeah, so that sounds like my phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What an embarrassing situation to be in. But the Teacher Tap as a project, how did this start? What was the idea? How did you guys get together as a team? We've talked about dynamic duos. Mm. You know, what, what brought you guys together and Karen Westbeezer and, and all the other people who were involved in your project? How did it mm. start? Well, right back in 2017, um, I'd done a lot of research on teachers and I was really frustrated by the inability of um, research like us to actually reach you, get you to answer surveys because you don't spend every day sitting at a desk answering email. Um, and so we developed this idea that we could have an app where we could regularly ask teachers what was going on. And at the time, um, Laura was the editor of Schools Week. And as a journalist, she was just incredibly frustrated that policymakers, politicians were standing up and saying, this is going on in schools. Teachers think this. Teachers want this. And she would always just think, do they? Like, how do we actually know what's going on in schools? And often they are quite... Um, mundane or trivial things, but they're still important because politicians are talking about them um, around the arrangement of um, the school day, what goes on in a staff room, what do you have access to, um, the photocopiers, the mm. colour photocopiers um, and so on. And so we ask questions every day now um, to try and fill that void that gives teachers a voice, an accurate voice of really what's going on in schools. And if we've learned anything from doing it is just that Teachers are very diverse, they're very diverse in their daily lives, they're very diverse in their beliefs, and so whenever somebody says to you, oh no teacher thinks that, mm. I can promise they do, <laughs> somewhere, and that's what we constantly reveal, and also schools are just really diverse in their practice, but if your head teacher asks you to do something saying this has to happen in schools, this is a requirement, this is the law, actually finding out what's going on across schools and being able to say, yeah, I get you want us to do this, but just so you know, this isn't normal. This isn't what normally goes on in a secondary school. It's a really powerful piece of information for teachers to have. But how did you two then join as a as a as this force? Who had the first idea? Becky, I'm going to blame you. Becky had the first idea um, and was trying to work out how to make this happen. And actually, at the beginning, Becky, you were really interested in trainee teachers right yeah, I was interested in early career teachers yeah. and then because I was at schools week I said well look is there any way you could use this thing to poll all teachers so that it would help at schools week and Becky said yes but only if you helped me do it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so the two of us um over the summer of 2017 while still doing our other jobs at the time um kind of figured out how to do it and actually about four days after we started and officially set it up and um, I was really ill with sepsis and I went into hospital and thought I was going to die so over the next six seven weeks I was largely at home trying to recover so Becky went forward and, and got the app built yeah and then and also September, found we joined Alex Weatherall who yeah at the time was a full-time physics teacher up in Yorkshire who I had met through research ed who's very actively involved in research ed conferences and I knew that he was able to build out database back-end databases and so on and I just said I think we're going to need your help I think we're going to be generating quite a lot of data like please come and do this crazy thing with us and because Alex is a kind of joiner in he said okay yeah I'll do it and so yeah he joined us very early on in helping to build this thing. From all the all the data you've gathered which is probably more data than anyone can even comprehend what's the most sort of surprising shocking outlandish thing that you've you've come across where you thought but yeah, I really didn't know that was the case or I really didn't think people felt that way about something 
Is there anything that stands out? Just in the last week. There's so many, it's hard to pick one. But if I can give you one just in the last week, because it happens all the time. Um, We'd picked up from some some things that we were looking at online that there were these things called ELSAs in schools. And I'd never heard of an ELSA. And I asked lots of people who were involved in policy, various school leaders, and no one had heard of ELSAs. But it stands for Emotional Support Learning Assistance. And um, actually, we surveyed in the last week and we found that about one in three primary schools has an es uh, an elsa emotional learning support assist, uh, emotional literacy support assistant right. so this is like something brand brand new that's happening in one in three primary schools that lots of people in government lots of people in policy don't even know about and it's because in primary school actually teaching assistants a lot of the time are helping the children with their social and emotional skills they are ensuring that they're looking after each other in the playground that they're able to be self-motivated that they're able to stay calm in difficult situations so we can see what's going on but it's just amazing that if you don't ask these questions or you don't know to ask these questions you'll never find out what's actually happening on the ground in schools and the conversation can move on so rapidly on the ground and yet policymakers still don't know yeah we're talking of policy and policymakers green paper white paper what are your uh, what are your thoughts remember there's no swearing read them (laughs) we asked about the parent pledge which was yeah. um you know about children falling behind and actually it was interesting because everybody said well schools already tell parents if their children are falling behind and intervene and we did find that's true in primary schools by and large in secondary schools it's not as true um in part i think because that's not how secondary schools talk about these things you wouldn't tend to say to a parent your child is on to get say a three in their gcses therefore they're falling behind it's just not the language that's used so it's a good disconnect between the government saying something didn't happen secondary schools agreeing but it might be for a particular reason um so that's where it's good also the same on the school hours you know the government has said they want to make sure that schools do 32 and a half hours per week lots of people said every school do that we could see very rapidly that they they didn't do that there are reasons it's largely because lunch and break times are shortened Um, and then we can debate whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing but it's interesting again sometimes on the ground in schools we also can have misperceptions of what's happening largely because you only speak to usually similar people to yourself if you're a primary teacher speak to other primary if you're secondary speak to other secondary teachers yeah and teacher tap as a i don't know how you would describe it as, as a business as a movement <laughs> as an organization you're you, you're growing you, you're growing can you talk us about maybe about the next 12 months 24 months where do you sort of see teacher tap going obviously without giving away insider information Oh, well, that's always really funny because we always, you know, we're supposed to have like official goals of our organisation. And then Laura and I always have these conversations on the phone that involve <laughs> dreaming up completely different things that we want to do. So we've been running Teacher Tap in Netherlands and Flanders, and we've really loved um, having the opportunity to collect comparative data. Mm. I personally am keen that we do it in other countries, mm. and we constantly get approaches from people who just say, I've seen this, it would be amazing if we had this in our country. So, so it's a good job we're interviewing you now because we might not get anywhere near you in the future because you'll be so famous in the world of education mate. just very briefly because i know where you want to get off to these sessions who, who have you seen already today that's impressed you? you becky i know you were very keen to talk about someone earlier so i went to see christopher such um, and i believe it's his first time at a research ed and he was talking about reading um, and he just gave us a short, completely incredible session teaching us what reading was and why it's so difficult to do um, and giving really fantastic insights. And it was just a, 
it was just an absolutely brilliant presentation. And as I sat there, I just thought, we need every single teacher in the country to be able to see this guy give a half hour talk about reading. Um, we need to like, we need to be getting him to the O2, to the NEC. We need a national tour. We on need, More Than like, a Job podcast. Or, or indeed on More Than the Job podcast, well done, which is sort of, in. yeah, if we can't get the national tour. But he, is, <laughs> he, he is a superstar. Um, presenter and if anybody ever gets the opportunity to see him they really must. Laura? This is when this is where actually we start cooking things up, right? And we'll start yeah. thinking like, should there be some kind of teach tap tour yeah. that we can take How can him we on? Get Christopher Satch on teacher tap. Um, yeah. I was in the panel earlier um, with I don't know Catherine's surname, which is terrible of me, but Catherine who was talking about special educational needs and the green paper, and I, I that's an area that we at Teach Tap we've never been able to crack really how we get more more teachers in special schools to be on the app because Catherine, often our Catherine questions. Walsh. There you go, Catherine Walsh. She was fantastic. Um, I'm always really interested in SEND and I think that it's hard for us to get enough teachers on um, that we can get a really good sample and also our questions often don't work. And it's a good example, right, of how when you're doing research, you need these really big samples. So we end up talking about mainstream all of the time and yet there's so much that can be done in some of these groups. So to hear her talk about the future and the fact that schools are going to be expected to do more on SEND with fewer and fewer resources and what that might mean um, was really challenging and you know there's still no answers research is able to do a lot but sometimes it can't answer these most difficult questions Um, so we're always trying to think about what else we can be doing to to solve things really and can the can the average joe out there can they get questions on the app is that is that possible to suggest questions and so Anyone can sign up and be on the app. If they're not yeah. a teacher, they can sign up as not a teacher. Yeah. Um, and then they're not including the results, but they're, they're kind of, yeah, they're, they're able to see the results. Um, in terms of suggesting questions, yes, on the app, if you go to settings and contact us, there is a contact us form. We do read everything that people send to us. And there's a Slack channel that we have internally where any questions, suggestions get pulled over. And Sashana, our community manager, is checking those regularly. And then we put them in. Um, as much as we can if you suggest answers to your questions because it's multiple choice questions on the app that is always a way of getting to the front of the queue otherwise we have to try and interpret the type of answers that you would want and that's more challenging so it's a good tip yeah brilliant laura McInerney and professor becky allen from teacher tap and other things as well of course thanks for coming on more than a job podcast thank you We are with Nikki Kaiser at Research Ed Berkshire. Nikki is a chemistry teacher at a school in Norwich, where she's also assistant head teacher and director of the Norwich Research School. She was seconded to the EEF in January 2020 as a science content specialist and was awarded the Royal Society of Chemistry's School Education Award in 2019. I forgot that. Shout out. You forgot forgot (laughs) the award that you got. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. Can you briefly explain what you're talking about today? Yeah, I'll try to. I'm, I'm coming at it with a few hats that I wear. So I'm, I'm primarily a chemistry teacher, I guess. Um, so I teach and I use research to inform my teaching. But um, I also do a lot of work with other teachers um, in my role in the research school. And my job as an assistant head is literally to be... The, the kind of the grit in the oyster for SLT and to really challenge them on what they do and to help them with 
implementing things within the school. So, and then in my job at the EEF, I was looking at this on a national level, trying to help people to use research. And I think my main conclusion is that um, it's all very well knowing all this lovely stuff about research. There is some really good research out there. And, and I think, for example, the EEF does a really good job of, of making it really accessible to people, trying to put it um, in a, a way that, that I can understand when I'm walking into the classroom to teach year nine on a Tuesday afternoon, you know. But um, even that isn't enough. And a, and a lot of it is around um, how we help teachers to understand what the research says. But what it means to them and and kind of treating them as professionals you know how do I get each individual teacher to understand or decide how this relates to them how, how do I get this and actually a lot of it boils down to behavior change it's it's about getting people on side about helping them to understand about making it easy not not easy as in dumbing it down if that's a phrase you want to use but making it accessible to to find in the first place accessible to to apply um and it's not easy is my conclusion any early career teachers or nqts yeah. um anyone new into the profession can you just describe the work of the eef because they yeah, might not know what that, no, that's, that actually that's means that's a really good point so um the education endowment foundation actually it's 10 years old um and it was originally um so it's recently celebrated its 10-year anniversary but it was originally set up to to try and um i guess evaluate research um so some of the work that it did in the early days was about um setting up trials and 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 uh, evaluating those but it's i think they really have in the last uh, few years so we have been a, a research school an eef research school since uh, 2017 and um and that's part of their work um, part of the work of something called the dissemination and impact team, the, the team that really tries to um, say, well, you know, <laughs> this research is great, but but how do we get that into schools? How do we help teachers to use it? Um, and so some of that is in guidance reports. So um, I was really heavily involved with the secondary science guidance report, and that was uh, where you kind of take the research that's out there, they um, and and then you hone it down into kind of key recommendations and then the the teacher facing guidance report is is trying to then kind of say well how does this look how do we apply that to the classroom but another branch of it is um the research schools so um it's set up on the premise that that schools listen to schools and teachers listen to teachers and so we are all practicing teachers you know within schools but we spend a lot of our time talking to other teachers about research. So it goes from just knowledge is power to knowledge is power when it's shared properly with people. Yeah, and knowledge is power when um, you understand that that there's actually, um, it, like taking a teaching analogy, um, I, there's a quote from Dylan William that I often say, which is, you know, what is taught is not the same as what is learned. You know, mm. you might teach the best lesson in the world or the best explanations ever. And then you, you ask a question or you look through books and you think, really, that's what you thought I said? You know, and that's a lot of what, I, you know, that's the work that I've been doing. But, but I think that's the same with research. You know, you, you can talk about what it says, what it means, and then actually that will look very different in my classroom actually with each individual class sometimes with each individual pupil and and my classroom will then look different to the 
classroom next to me and so it should right I yeah. mean like, I think you know we have to be careful that there's some kind of oversight and, and we know that you know everybody has access to a similar level of education and all that but actually I think the individuality and the professionalism of teachers to take this research and use it in a way that that is you know is right for them is really important so how, yeah how does it work on a practical level in Norwich then so you, so you work at a school in Norwich yeah how do you how, how, how does that disseminate out to the schools in your area do you do you see the other science teachers do you do you go and visit them do they come into your school yeah so a lot of what we do um day to day is setting is working within kind of training partnerships so at, of, often most of what I do actually is not specifically science um we um, we are working with a partnership at the moment in um, Peterborough, for example. There's a really, really nice um, partnership, a really sustained bit of work that we've been doing there where for a few years now we've been working with leaders there to um, help them to understand um, the research and the evidence around um, how best to support vulnerable pupils, pupil premium groups, uh, okay. groups of pupils and so on. Um, and and so we've spent time kind of working with the leaders there so that they are beginning to then disseminate that out around Peterborough. That's a really nice model of how it can work. It's not, it, it never wants to be, we are the research school, we tell you what to do. No, it's not. And, and we always come at things saying, you know, we're not <laughs> doing this from a point of, we have time and we have expertise we hope that we've developed but actually what we want to do is help you to develop this expertise within each area so we that, that's one example we're working with other schools um, within Norwich for example we're an opportunity area so we do quite a lot of work with um, groups of schools doing a really nice um, bit of work this year with um, primary schools um, around um, reading uh, we worked really closely with Caroline Bilton who was the content specialist at the EF um, for literacy when I was there and, and really kind of she she really talks about the kind of moral imperative of making sure that that children can read and 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 really coming at it as a you know a holistic thing as well as a, a research-based thing so there's some work around that so day to day it's a lot of kind of talking to schools and and talking about what they're looking for um setting up I guess sustained partnerships I think really what I've come to understand is that um you know it's 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 a problem if you think it's job done you know you tell someone but it's the same with teaching if you think I've taught that I'll walk away they know it forever then you're in danger and I think it's the same here that there's something around you know working with people then then really supporting them to make sure it's sustained and sustainable a lot of what we do is is also kind of wraparound coaching for leaders um eef talks a lot about implementation and making sure what i was saying about making sure everyone's on board making sure everyone's ready to do what you're doing not just kind of imposing stuff on them you know all of that side of things is is a lot of what we do as well so yeah day to day a lot of kind of talking to people a bit of training we obviously have to make sure we're up to date with things and and um and we teach <laughs> sounds like a lot of fascinating work in norwich which obviously they're getting a, a lot of benefits from but can other areas and schools tap into this from you are you approachable well, how they get in touch of course but also probably if you're not in uh norwich or norfolk mm. or peterborough there will be another research school that's nearer mm. to you so for example across the border in suffolk there's the unity research school um and you know i know that there are, I think, 30 research schools or something around the country. I thought Norfolk so. and Suffolk didn't get on with each other. Oh, no, like are, do you know what? The eastern, the eastern, I was going to say the eastern block, but the eastern, like, team east, I think we called ourselves. No, it's, I think, actually, seriously, that is one of the really 
powerful aspects that I've seen of the Search the Network that it's genuinely collaborative and, and that's been really nice. Brilliant. Shout out to Norfolk and Suffolk well, exactly. on the podcast. <laughs> so you, you're on Twitter? Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Chem Dr. K, I think. Yeah. Brilliant. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, uh, you know, and, and, and find out, we haven't even had a chance to talk to you about science, but I know you, you want to get to the next talk. So yeah, no. And am I right in saying that you've got a, um, a research at Norwich? Yeah, really excited about this. It's going to be the first in-person research at Norwich. We had a really successful one online two years ago. We obviously didn't think that it was going to be online when we were planning it, but it turned into a really wonderful weekend um, when we had it. So we're really looking forward to the first online research at Norwich. So do find out more, do get in touch if you'd like to speak or if you'd like to come along. It's on the 25th of June and it's in at Soul Park School, which is Soul Park Academy, which is in central Norwich. And without giving the game away, is there anybody that we should be looking out for who may be making an appearance there to whet our appetite? Uh, we haven't released any names yet apart from that. So what I will say is that we are really keen to have really strong threads on SEND, primary we've got a really strong thread thread on cog sci cognitive science um, and and we're most proud i think that we've got lots of people that are coming from outside of, of norwich and norfolk coming in to speak but also a lot of homegrown kind of norfolk norwich um teachers and talent as well um, and and so i think that that diversity of kind of voices some people that have never spoken before some that are really established um, and headed up um, starting the day with oliver caviglioli who's going to talk about kind of for me the next stage um, in cognitive science in that kind of embodied um, cognition and then he's also going to do a workshop later with some of our um, local leaders um, giving some exemplification so it's going to be a really nice kind of make sure um, Oliver could access the computer when he does his yes, he's presentation as he asked you because we interviewed him in Birmingham about that no, so, I'm looking at it. We're, brilliant. we're getting the laptop ready. Oh, yeah. lovely! So, Thank research head Norwich. We, uh, we, you know, we hope that goes really well. And and if you're listening in that area, in the east of England, Essex, Suffolk, Norfolk, wherever, uh, get your tickets now. Thank you. So we're at Research Ed Berkshire in the main hall actually and we're with Vic Goddard, CEO of Passmore's Co- Cooperative Learning Community of Four Schools in Harlow, Essex. Of course, probably better known for educating Essex. Welcome to the uh, Thank you. podcast, Vic. Thank you. What have you been talking about today? I've um, been talking a bit about sort of professional learning and ultimately observations to improve teaching. That's what I've been talking about and sort of the model we've, well, the journey we've been on with ruining people's lives by making them stressed and anxious through to focusing on what we do well and it's been much it was, it's been a much better experience for all of us. So, yeah, that was. I'm hoping that, you know, if there's anybody sitting there who still is grading lessons after that, they won't. And, and you said this is your first research there. So tell us a little bit about that. How come? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm friends with Tom Bennett, so I, you know, I'd sp- he spoke to me about it before it all started and everything else. And um, I think it comes down to my. I felt like a fraud in. There's people who do this every day, and teachers in classrooms. They really need to know this stuff. And as a head, you do, but. I became a teacher in the time of all of the bad stuff. I had VAK on my notice board. I had must, should, could. I did all. I bought every piece of nonsense that was there, or anything anybody told me. Anybody that had a suit on or a red badge, you believed them. Um, and so, over the course of the last sort of six or seven years, there's been a lot of oh my god's going on. I, I feel for that. I really that was done in a in a in a meeting by a petrol station. Was it lovely? Okay. So it, it was. It, I was nervous as hell. 
nervous as hell because it, this is something that's important to the profession and it needs to be given um, the right platform and the right people speaking about it and I didn't think I was that. If I can defend you a little bit, anyone who watched, who watched Educating Essex, it was a massive programme, wasn't it? At the yeah, time? it was you know, at the time, yeah. Over a decade ago. Yeah. But, but you, you're a people person and, yeah. and, and the way you spoke to the kids at that school and the staff was, was, was very relaxed and they all admired you a lot. Yeah. So, thank you. You know, the research aside, <laughs> that's, that's possibly the main thing you need to be a great head teacher. I, yeah, I guess so. But I'm still a teacher. I get that. And being a head teacher, if you haven't got people skills, don't be a head teacher. Doesn't matter how brilliant you are, everything else, because you have to. Um, but I'm a head little case teacher, big case still. That's where my passion still is. The best 10 hours I have in a fortnight are in the classroom. So I should be the best teacher I can be. And therefore, I need to engage with this stuff. But I need to find the time to engage with this stuff. And that's the difficulty. How do you feel when you look back at Educating Essex, the, 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 whole, the whole journey? I mean, first of all, actually, how did the project start? So we literally cold call from Channel 4. Um, we'd had a young man pass away um, on December. Um, and out of the blue, year 10 lad, heart condition. Um, and so we'd had a term with the kids of saying, take chances, you know, don't just, don't just ignore risk, you know, life can be short. You know, a lot of people have been thinking yeah. that the last couple of years. And then I get this phone call from Channel 4, which normally I would have just gone, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I was like, okay, come and talk to us. And what they pitched and what it was wasn't the same thing. It was going to be much less programmes and it was going to be 90% outside of school. But then after two weeks of them filming outside of school, they came and went, it's really dull outside of school, but it's really interesting in school, so can we come in? So the governors decided yes. They took all the cameras down from 24 hours in A&E and put them up in our place. And, and it was a surprise. It was. And when I sat and watched the first episode, obviously before it was on television, sort of a, a dry run, it was amazing the insight and the stuff that I learned about my school because so much happens when I'm not around, obviously. So, yeah, it was, it was purely coincidence. I think they, every head teacher every week goes, yeah, we were offered it too. We said no. I never know what I'm supposed to say to them about that. Yeah, good idea. I don't know. But, and, and you know, this is 11 years now and I still get invited to do stuff like this. So I'm, 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 it's, it's given me personally great opportunities, um, but it's also given my school a voice. Yeah. You know, we've got um, the minister from one of the ministers from the DfE coming on Monday, Will Quince, to talk about the green paper and inclusion. That's really important to me, you know. And would they be there if they wanted a little bit frightened of thirty-two thousand Twitter followers? No, probably not. Yeah. How close to reality was the program? It was. It was like the quadruple concentrated squash. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that recently. Actually, yeah, yeah. it's gone to quadruple double, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. That. It was a very, very concentrated insight into certain parts of the school. We're, we're you know. talking about Crystal Palace, obviously. Yeah, your, 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 your other passion, part my other passion. Yeah, was it a bit like watching match of the day, where you get the, the highlights. You know, you get the few chances. I didn't have to wait till the last. Match <laughs> on educating Essex. I was in it quite near the beginning, so I guess that was a slight. Or our share was like you off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. Do you know it was? It was a moment in time. I, I, people said we were brave. We weren't brave. We were the first, mm. second, third, fourth were brave because I knew what the impact was going to be. I didn't. I didn't know that I was going to go into a pub and fifty people were going to ask for a photograph with me. You know, that's that was bizarre, and I'm quite a private person from that perspective. So it was. It was really weird. So. They've been back a few times since and said, will you do it again? And, and I've said, tell me how much your child's education is worth and I'll tell you that's how much you've got to pay us. Yeah. Because the bottom line is a kid makes a different choice because they now know what it looks like. Yeah. I'm in a corridor dealing with Billy who's been naughty and Billy, I, de- I, you know, I, I bring Billy down. If there's a cabbie behind my head, I might not. 
because he might think I'm on the telly now. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to put any one child in that position. So, yeah, it's not going to happen again, I don't think. Is there any regrets you have from doing it? Anything you think, you've looked back and you think, I wish that had not happened? Um, do you know what? No, because the, the end point isn't pain, hasn't been damaging um, for anybody. Um, there, there are things that you look back on and, you know, unfortunately one of the young men in that, in that series committed suicide a couple of years ago. You know, you look back on that and you look back on he was a challenging young person and you question yourself. Of course you do. You know, my school's a school that keeps picking kids up if they fall over, but we've got to teach them how not to fall over as well. And that's really difficult at times because you're busy. So, you, you know, you deal with it and you move on. Well, actually, I need to teach him that when I'm not here, this is how you do it yourself. And so it makes you question that. So that's, that's been the long term. One's doing a six-year stretch and one's committed suicide, you know. And, and you don't always see the end point of, yeah. of people when you've known them for as long as you've known them at school, you know. So, but that is two out of a lot of success. Yeah, no, there is. And, they, you know, and, and Gabby, who was one of the girls who was bullied in it, she came back and did a teacher training with us, you know. And, and so we have more teachers now that used to be ex-students than we've ever had before. And that wasn't the case in Harlow. You know, I've got 10 ex-students as teachers. That's amazing. You know, that's amazing. So I can't regret anything, really, because it hasn't damaged anybody, I don't think. Just putting it back to the to the research. So what at Passmore's, you know, across the four schools, what what at the moment then if you if we're going back to that yeah, what yeah. you said at the start about looking at the research now and changing your opinion, what are you really focusing on? What's impressing you in the world of education research at the moment? Um, I I mean what's we're all focused on curriculum as we should be. Um, and how that how that sort of escalates out from your your your, your thought of what you need to cover to how it's delivered. Um, and we have an issue with our young people not revising as much as they should do and um, things like that. So our focus has to be on retrieval practice and things like that. It has to be because that's the thing that gives them the biggest chance of being successful in their GCSEs. So that has to be a focus until we've got better at it and they've got better at it. And I think that'll be the case. Culture's always going to be there. My sort of school relationships are always going to be important. You know, if you've got a member of staff who's struggling, there's somebody who's not struggling with that class somewhere and trying to grow that. So, yeah... I, which we are all things, all people in lots of ways. But for me, our retrieval practice and literacy are the two biggest things for me. Our young people arrive, we have about 40% more than two years below the chronological reading age on arrival. The problem is SATS doesn't measure that and it doesn't measure how much they can access the curriculum. So we are investing a huge amount and I've promised the governors this year that within three years, every child that leaves our school will have a reading age at the chronological age. And that's what we're going to do. And if we take care of that, they'll pass their GCSEs. Yep. And that's our focus for the next probably three, four years. So, at the moment, you've had all those bottles of snake oil in your office in the past. <laughs> yes! You're, you're pouring them all down the drain. I am. Does that mean we're going to see you at some more research head events I, across the country? Do you know what? I, yeah, you are. And, and it's, just looking at the titles, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, I listen, I listen to Mark McCall, who I follow on Twitter today. I'm a maths teacher. That was brilliant, you know? And I guess you could say, are they the... These, this, this term snake oil salesman, you know, is market. But now we know so much more that I'm, you know, I, I can feel safe in investing in something. Whereas before, you invest in something there, you're going, oh, that was a waste of time, wasn't it, for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So, yeah, no, I am. I'm definitely going to engage more. Definitely. Brilliant. Vic Goddard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to, very much. To Thank you. Cheers. Listen clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, because it begins like. 